Welcome, dear listeners, to the fourth episode of MostRocks.com, a media project focused on publishing curated voice casts and audio summaries of investment letters, reports and interviews by well-renowned investors and asset managers. In our fourth episode, we will be featuring the audio summaries of third quarter 2023 quarterly letters by four fantastic fund managers we admire. Gator Capital Management, and Avari Associates, Greystone Capital Management, and Old West Investment Management. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer. None of our MostRocks.com summaries or materials is an investment, legal or financial advice, and none of it is a recommendation for purchasing any securities. If you would like us to summarize and record your favorite investment letter or investment call or interview, please reach out to us via our Twitter X handle at twitter.com slash mostrocksweekly. And now let's jump straight to our first quarterly letter audio summary in this episode. Third quarter 2023, quarterly letter by Gator Capital Management. Published on November 7th, 2023. Short summary of the quarterly letter. Gator Capital Management discloses that its largest long equity positions as of September 30th, 2023 were First Citizens Bank Shares, Genrith Financial, Western Alliance Bancorp, Jackson Financial and OFG Bancorp. The Q3 2023 letter exclusively discusses the investment merits of the fund's current holding in First Citizens Bank Shares. First Citizens Bank Shares, ticker FCNCA. The fund manager's largest stake is in First Citizens Bank Shares, which has been accumulated over the last three years. Initially, the fund manager held a small share in CIT Group Incorporated in summer 2020, believing that it was undervalued and the management was effectively managing risk amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. When CIT decided to merge with First Citizens later that year, the fund manager upped its CIT stake anticipating a surge in First Citizens' shares which would also elevate CIT shares. After the merger, CIT shares got converted into First Citizens' shares which Gator Capital Management has held on to. This was due to the fund manager's high regard for the management team, and the perception that the bank was undervalued, and the projection that the bank would prosper amidst higher interest rates. This year, First Citizens successfully bid for the failed Silicon Valley Bank in the FDIC's auction, prompting the fund manager to substantially increase the fund's First Citizens position as the deal heavily benefits First Citizens. Consequently, First Citizens' stock price saw over 50% surge that day and has appreciated by another 40% since the Silicon Valley Bank's acquisition. Gator Capital Management is yet to sell any shares as the fund manager anticipates the stock could double in the next three years. Meanwhile, the fund manager foresees very minimal downside as in the worst-case scenario. The fund manager predicts the stock price remaining the same in three years. Looking into more detail on the investment thesis for First Citizens. Its price-to-tangible book value and price-to-earnings ratios are slightly lower compared to other regional banks. Despite a projected return on equity of 14% in 2024 being lower than its peers, once one accounts for First Citizens' surplus capital, it matches its peers' return on equity and hence should not trade at a discount. Several possibilities underpin why First Citizens trades at a discount, including its non-membership to the S&P 500 index which limits demand from passive index investors. Other minor factors include limited but growing sell-side coverage, only recently starting to host quarterly earnings conference calls, not attending brokerage investment conferences, high nominal stock price and limited trading volume, and a lower dividend than peers. The First Citizens dual-class share structure that results in the holding family controlling Class B voting shares may also discourage some investors. The fund manager, however, disagrees with this line of thinking as the holding family has a history of stellar shareholder returns, catapulting First Citizens to the top of its peer group in the past three decades. The fund manager classifies the holding family as owner-operators, considering that many top-performing stocks have been steered by owner-operators, including the likes of Berkshire, Microsoft, and Amazon. A major critique of the dual-class share structure is the challenge in external pressure succeeding in gaining voting control and or board seats. 
However, considering the high hurdles for a hostile takeover in banking and the restrictions regulators put on ownership levels for banks, the fund manager views the dual-class share structure as a non-issue. First Citizen's impressive stock performance in 2023 might deter some investors despite significant return potential. Despite the sector seeing a 20-35% retreat this year, First Citizen's stock has soared 78%. Fear of buying First Citizen's shares after the rally only for it to underperform is natural for investors as they want to avoid duplicating an error in judgment. Despite this, in First Citizens, the fund manager sees extensive downside protection authenticated by the defensive nature of its balance sheet. First Citizens exemplifies a very fluid balance sheet, with 17.6% of its assets in cash compared to Truist's 5.6%. This liquidity provides the bank with ample opportunities to exploit wider loan spreads currently available and reduces pressure to raise interest rates on deposits. The hefty cash balance best characterizes how shareholders have a level of defense from First Citizens' balance sheet. First Citizens' balance sheet exhibits defense and growth potential. The bank has negligible borrowing besides the FDIC note that has a five-year term worth $35 billion. Furthermore, management did not venture into long-dated fixed-rate securities hence isn't burdened with a portfolio of underwater bonds like several other banks. Also, First Citizens composed an equal balance between floating rate and fixed-rate loans through strategic acquisitions of CIT and SVB. The CIT franchise created excess loans, and the legacy SVB franchise generated excess deposits. Consequently, First Citizens is favorably positioned for prevailing consensus rates outlook for higher for longer. Based on current sell-side models, there's an assumption of negligible growth in First Citizens legacy banking operations and SVB shrinking. However, the fund manager disagrees and believes the former SVB operations have a promising outlook. Despite personnel recruitment by competitors, customers who intended to exit SVB have already done so as the current deposits at SVB have dipped 80% from the year-end levels, Nevertheless, Silicon Valley Bank has robust associations with the venture capital community, and the fund manager anticipates the venture capital industry will grow at a higher clip than the overall economy. Thus, Gator Capital Management is optimistic of Silicon Valley Bank continuing to grow under First Citizen's ownership at the current valuation, treating this growth potential as a free option. The fund manager sees room for regional banks as a group, including First Citizens, to trade higher. In addition to First Citizens trading at a discount compared to other large regional banks, Regional banks currently lie at the lower end of their historical valuations. Although banks are supposed to trade cheaply at this point in the cycle, the fund manager anticipates a re-rate as the industry navigates higher interest rates and the peak of the credit cycle. Finally, the fund manager recognizes a few risks to its investment hypothesis for first citizens. First, the Federal Reserve aggressively trimmed short-term interest rates in response to weak economic conditions. First citizens ranks highly on the asset sensitivity spectrum among large regional banks, Hence, aggressive rate cuts by the Federal Reserve would impact First Citizens' earnings negatively. However, given the recent inflation surge that the Federal Reserve has been grappling with and the Fed's higher for longer mantra, the fund manager believes this scenario is improbable. Second, the persisting calls by bank regulators for increases in banks' capital requirements. Even though the fund manager is against this stance, it acknowledges its potential in reducing returns for bank investors if higher capital requirements are implemented. However, the fund manager believes First Citizens is better placed to meet higher capital requirements given its excess capital position. The fund manager expects First Citizens management to operate the bank with a considerable capital buffer. Third, First Citizens may be over-earning in the short term. The favorable conditions from the SVB acquisition, that is, issuing a five-year note to the FDIC at a submarket interest rate of 3.5% and marking to market the Silicon Valley Bank loan portfolio at a discount to account for credit risk, may be inflating First Citizens' earnings. Fourth, the bank's grappling with significant integration risks with the Silicon Valley Bank deal. The Silicon Valley Bank acquisition was a large, complicated deal for a new line of business. In addition, several competitors are headhunting SVB personnel. However, the fund manager is comfortable with First Citizen's extensive experience in integrating complex and geographically dispersed acquisitions. 
Fifth, future M&A deals are unlikely to be as value accretive for first citizens as the Silicon Valley Bank deal. The opportunity for valuable acquisitions has waned given the bank's vast size compared to 15 years ago or even earlier this year, and the FDIC is comfortable with first citizens' management team. Next, the effects of quantitative tightening on banking industry deposit balances. Despite the Federal Reserve's Federal Open Market Committee on the verge of ending this interest rate tightening cycle, they continue implementing quantitative tightening by allowing the Fed's portfolio of securities holdings to mature with limited reinvestment. And finally, dependency at legacy Silicon Valley Bank's business on the venture capital cycle, that does not look promising in the short run. Venture capital goes through cycles and 2021 seemed to mark the peak of the latest one. The amount of venture capital raised dropped significantly in 2022 and 2023 forcing many startups to slash expenses and conserve capital. However, the potential upside exists from the excitement around artificial intelligence. Nonetheless, despite First Citizen's outperformance this year, Gator Capital Management still considers it an enticing holding. The fund manager estimates its tangible book value to reach $1,800 by the end of 2026. If the bank can trade at 1.5 times tangible book value at the end of 2026 or $2,700, it will be double the current share price. And now let's jump straight to our second quarterly letter audio summary in this episode. Third quarter 2023. Quarterly letter by Andavari Associates. Published on November 7, 2023. Short summary of the quarterly letter. Andavari Associates quarterly letter is focusing on one new position, Rollins. The third quarter 2023 quarterly letter argues that Rollins was purchased at a reasonable price that will allow the fund manager to compound its investment at above average rates. In addition, the fund manager expresses confidence in the future performance of American Tower, the current holding of Anvari Associates. The fund manager notes that it has owned the company in the past and believes that American Tower shares are extremely attractive. First, the shares trade at a current 3.8% dividend yield at the end of October 2023. This yield is near the highest in American's entire history as a public company. Second, the company will likely grow dividends per share by 9% annually over the long term. In addition, the fund manager believes American Tower will sell its assets in India before year's end, which will free up capital it can use to pay off debt and repurchase shares. Apart from mentioning conviction in the investment in American Tower, the fund manager extensively discusses the investment in Rollins Incorporated. Rollins Incorporated ticker ROL. Rollins, a parent company to numerous pest control firms, experienced a drop in share price by nearly 10% after announcing that the Rollins family, which held a 50.5% stake in the company, would sell up to $1.76 billion of its ownership. And Avari Associates leveraged this stock decline to invest in the company. The fund manager notes that it has always held Rollins in high regard due to its unique qualities. Primarily, the company operates within the warm southern U.S. states where pests proliferate and more people are migrating for work or retirement. This consistent in-migration will boost Rollins' growth above the average rate for years to come. Besides, in the highly dispersed pest control industry Rollins, one of the biggest companies, acquired over 100 pest control businesses over the last three years. Despite holding a 26% market share, opportunities for organic and acquisitive growth persist, Another aspect is the indispensable service that Rollins provides to homeowners and businesses, which accounts for a small part of total expenses. Due to the necessity of pest control services, Rollins can comfortably increase prices by 4% to 5% annually. Given the obligatory nature and the aversion to pests, Rollins' revenues, 80% of which are recurring, are quite stable. Rollins' size allows it to outperform smaller competitors by buying supplies at lower prices and acquiring other businesses efficiently. The stable cash flows it generates are used for acquisitions, increasing dividends, and sporadic share buybacks. Moreover, technological advancements are unlikely to make the pest control industry obsolete in the foreseeable future. Hence, Rollins services will remain relevant and in demand among its clients. Combining all these factors, Rollins has impressive financial attributes. 
its revenues have grown on average by 8.2% per annum over the past decade, exceeding profit growth rates. With gross margins above 50% and EBITDA margins standing at 22.3%, the conversion of additional revenue to EBITDA is healthy, ranging from 30% to 40%. The fund manager believes these metrics can slowly improve further over time. The fund manager also believes the price of Rollins shares was reasonable, allowing it to grow its capital above average rates. And now let's jump straight to our third quarterly letter audio summary in this episode. Third quarter 2023 quarterly letter by Greystone Capital Management. Published on November 12, 2023. Short summary of the quarterly letter. Greystone Capital Management third quarter 2023 quarterly letter discloses that the fund manager has entered into four new positions. At the same time during the past quarter the fund manager has exited Polish.com and IDT Corporation and has also trimmed its position in Basic Fit. The quarterly letter focuses on discussing fund managers' new positions in Bellfuse Incorporated, Medical Facilities Corp., and Seneca Foods Corporation. The first company featured in Greystone Capital Management's letter, Bellfuse Incorporated ticker BELFB. Bellfuse Incorporated is the portfolio manager's latest investment, capitalizing on market downturns to secure shares in a flourishing, well-led, and financially sound enterprise at an attractively low price. With a 75-year-long track record, Bellfuse specializes in manufacturing electronic components for various sectors including telecommunications, aerospace transportation, and consumer electronics. It functions through its three core segments, power solutions, connectivity solutions, and magnetic solutions, offering an extensive range of products. The portfolio manager initially saw Bellfuse as a commoditized company due to its substantial SKU count, modest organic growth, and below average margins. However, upon closer examination, it became apparent that the company had carved out a niche for itself in product design, implementation, and distribution, commanding strong customer trust due to its high-quality offerings. In fact, the company's products are critical for many clients as they are essential to the proper functioning and safety of various electrical systems. With a history spanning 75 years, the company has established long-standing relationships with its customers, enabling it to play a role in product design and customization. This grants them a measure of immunity against competition in terms of pricing and distribution. Despite past operational missteps attributable to family leadership, including stagnating organic growth and margin mismanagement, it has recently undergone significant positive changes. Farouk Tawake, the first-ever CFO of the company hired in 2021, has played a pivotal role in instigating this transformation with his industrial electronics expertise. Since his hiring, the company's financial performance has been significantly augmented, with gross margins rising by 1,000 basis points and EBITDA margins over tripling. There is further room for growth with the potential for selective pricing, improved fulfillment, and new product development. Whilst the company's business acceleration story progresses, with all segments showing marked operational momentum, optimization of margins and cash flow seems certainly foreseeable. Purchasing their shares at a mid-single-digit multiple of EBITDA represents a valuable investment opportunity. Insiders seem to affirm this view with CFO Farouk himself engaging in share purchases since 2021. The potential achievements of Farouk and his team form part of the portfolio manager's eager anticipation for the future of Belfuse. The second company featured in Greystone Capital Management's letter. Medical Facilities Corporation ticker MFCSF. Medical Facilities is a new inclusion in the portfolio for the recent quarter. This company, still flying under the radar as a microcap, owns a minority stake in a series of surgical hospitals situated across different regions. Its four main facilities in South Dakota, Oklahoma, and Arkansas offer a variety of services from orthopedics to spinal care, other outpatient, and inpatient treatments. The company practices a good business model where it collaborates with physicians to co-own these hospitals. Medical Facilities Corp. manages aspects like administration, billing, and back office support thus leaving doctors free to provide optimum medical care. 
The firm earns its revenue through a facility fee charged for its services. There is a negative perception about the business or industry due to stories from the past of private equity surgical hospital roll-ups collapsing under the weight of their high fixed cost model after taking up too much debt. However, Medical Facilities Corp. doesn't fit this categorization. If managed correctly, surgical hospitals can be immensely profitable. Even so, several factors ensure that the purchase of the stock was made at bargain prices. Among these is a recent turn of events where the company underwent a strategy shift, dividend cut, management and board changes, and operational enhancements under an activist influence. The objective was to bring about a rise in shareholder value exclusively. Despite the changes bringing positive improvements, the stock hasn't recovered yet. Furthermore, the hospitals under Medical Facilities Corp. are ranked among the best in their regions, are less leveraged compared to competitors, and have a proven track record of 20 to 40 years, enjoying high scores of quality from both patients and staff. The company will likely benefit from favorable trends in the U.S. healthcare market of a growing elderly population and sustained demand for orthopedic services. The company has soft moat characteristics that have enabled them to increase their patient volumes and revenues at mid-single-digit rates over the past 10 years. These characteristics include high patient satisfaction, greater procedure volumes for physicians, a wider range of procedures on offer, and transparent billing to avoid any surprise medical charges. Going forward, Medical Facilities Corp. can expect to see success due to its clear objectives for management. This includes efficient management of hospitals, selling off non-core assets, and returning capital to shareholders. Execution of these objectives has been ongoing with divesting five out of six non-core ambulatory surgery centers, improving hospital-level margins, and an impressive return of capital through the repurchase of nearly 20% of its shares outstanding done last year alone. Given the consolidation occurring across the industry and the rise of physician-owned hospitals and outpatient care, in the fund manager's view, the company's assets are attractive and could garner quality valuations in a sales scenario. If not, even with a slightly increased cost base, mid-single-digit top-line growth could see the company generating $1.5 to $2 in free cash flows per share in the next few years. With an ongoing divesting of assets, more share buybacks, and possible margin expansion, the upside potential may reach almost 100% over time. The third and the last company featured in Greystone Capital Management's letter. Seneca Foods Corporation ticker SENEA. This quarter, Greystone Capital Management has acquired shares in Seneca Foods Corporation, a major canned vegetable manufacturer in the United States, trading lower than its net current asset value. The firm also possesses real estate whose worth could possibly surpass the entire company's market value. Unlike typical deep value type investments, Seneca Foods runs a functioning business that is not in a state of decline. Its sector has been altered in a manner that will cause steady market share and increased earnings to persist into the future. The stock's current undervalued state can be attributed to various factors. The company was removed from the S&P 600 index earlier in the year, leading to a forced sale that reduced share prices by about 30%, despite no significant changes in its business operations. Additionally, Seneca doesn't screen well because of its high debt level and earnings that seem low due to its inventory accounting method. Combined with a lack of investor outreach efforts, it's not surprising that the shares are not on many radars. Historically, the canned vegetable sector has aggressively competed for market share, resulting in price wars. However, the recent exit of Del Monte Foods from the private label canned vegetable business has left Seneca and Lakeside Foods controlling approximately 85% of the industry. This will favorably impact Seneca's investment case, given its substantial production capacity in comparison to its competitors. Price hikes to customers are expected to provide a much-needed buffer against COVID-induced boosts in nearly all input costs, which is a significant advantage for the company. Investing in highly competitive industries is lucrative when the structure of this industry experiences a shift. The portfolio manager was able to secure shares at a mid-single-digit earnings multiple, providing a cushion to bear with temporary fluctuations in the company's performance. The portfolio manager remains optimistic about Seneca's ongoing profitability and believes that the stock will appreciate in value over time. 
And now let's jump straight to our fourth and last quarterly letter audio summary in this episode. Third quarter 2023. Quarterly letter by Old West Investment Management. Published on October 21, 2023. Short summary of the quarterly letter. Old West Investment Management's Q3 2023 quarterly letter mentions that the fund manager's portfolios currently have a large weighting to commodity-related companies. In the fund manager's view, commodities are the most compelling investment proposition as they are near 50-year lows relative to overall equity markets. The rush to clean energy and the billions of dollars being thrown at technologies that require these various metals will lead to much higher prices, and the fund manager believes the biggest movements will be concentrated in specific metals. The fund manager's current portfolio exposures are mainly in the producers and developers of uranium, copper, tin, and silver. For these core weightings, the fund manager is focused on low-cost producers and developers trading at attractive valuations. In this vein, the fund manager discusses the thesis of investing in Adriatic Metals PLC. Adriatic Metals PLC ticker ADT1 listed in London. Adriatic Metals is in the process of developing a polymetallic deposit in Europe, which is expected to result in the production of two primary products, zinc concentrate and a combination of lead and silver. The company will also generate additional revenue from the existence of copper, gold, and antimony. Among these, silver is most intriguing to the fund manager. Often regarded as an affordable alternative to gold, silver holds high appeal to precious metals investors. What's rarely talked about is the growing industrial demand for silver, particularly in advanced technologies where it is crucial for numerous applications. The unique features of the deposit make it one of the world's most cost-efficient silver projects. The mine is based in Bosnia and contrary to common perceptions, the country has a rich mining history dating back to the Bronze Age. The project area is an old mining town, recently explored with modern technologies. The mine's development will bring significant benefits to the local community by creating new jobs, boosting the area's infrastructure, and adding 2% to the overall GDP of the country. The local authorities have also been supportive, which has accelerated the development process. In only six years, the company has managed to progress from discovery to production. Paul Cronin, a successful natural resource investor, is the founder of the company. He targeted the project envisioning a growing demand for metals in Europe as the continent works on rebuilding domestic supplies, while in the face of it, Europe may seem an unlikely location for a new mine, the continent is working towards reducing its reliance on foreign countries for raw materials. The EU's commitment towards achieving climate neutrality by 2050 requires a green transition and mining has been identified as critical in accomplishing these goals. Adriatic Metals valuation is among the most affordable in our resource portfolio. Based on current commodity prices, it is estimated that the mine could generate over $200 million in annual free cash flow against a market cap of nearly $600 million. Due to its high-grade, small footprint, and low capex, the company is projecting a project internal rate of return of above 100%. This investment bears a resemblance to other holdings in Old West Investments portfolio, strong fundamentals but overlooked by investors. For instance, an update released by the company earlier this year that nearly doubled the estimated mineral resource didn't raise much attention among the investment community. However, as the company is only a few weeks away from commencing mining operations, the fund manager believes that the cash flow generation will finally grab investor attention. This brings us to the end of the fourth episode of our VoiceCast. Thank you for listening to our first episode of MostRocks.com VoiceCast. Please follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and on Twitter x via the handle twitter.com slash mostrocksweekly. MostRocks.com is a media project focused on publishing curated audio summaries of investment letters, reports, and interviews by well-renowned investors and asset managers. We strive to deliver value to our subscribers and most processes are done manually with diligence and attention to detail. However, we cannot guarantee that our summaries and excerpts are 100% accurate complete. The readers are always recommended to refer to the original sources. None of MostRocks.com summaries or materials is an investment, legal or financial advice, 
and none of it is a recommendation for purchasing any securities.